Hello and welcome to First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. And the battle for Severodonetsk continues in East Ukraine. One military leader insisted that Ukrainian soldiers would not give up, though he acknowledged troops could end up pulling back to more, quote, fortified positions. The city has been targeted by Russian artillery for weeks, part of a larger Russian push to seize control of the Donbass region. CNN's Sam Abdelaziz joins us once again from Kyiv. Sama, you were talking to us about this yesterday too. I think the bravery in those comments clear, but also the ongoing challenges. Absolutely. And you heard there those comments that we got from a regional official about pulling back to fortified positions. Ukrainian officials, of course, saying that the situation on the ground is changing hour by hour, that these are street by street fights, that uh, these Ukrainian forces are fighting for every inch of Severodonetsk. Uh, They say the city is almost entirely decimated, but still not under the control of Russian forces. Now, why this battle over what has essentially now been turned into a wasteland. That is, if you pull up that map of the front lines in Ukraine, it is because Severodonetsk is in the Lohansk region, an area that Russian-backed separatist officials say is 97% under the control of Russian forces. Again, that is according to Russian-backed separatists. So Severodonetsk would be that final step, that important leap in uh, President Putin's larger goal of taking control of the Lohansk region and, of course, the greater uh, Donbass region. And these battles that we're discussing here, Julia, I mean, these can drag out. You're talking about superior Russian artillery striking at a a Ukrainian force that is outmanned and outgunned. They are waiting on the one thing that could potentially turn the tide here. That's Western weapons, but that could be weeks away from receiving those long-range weaponry that they desperately need to be able to hit those Russian artillery positions. So what you could potentially be looking at and what this regional official here is hinting at about pulling back to fortified positions is essentially what Ukrainian officials would say is a strategic uh, withdrawal, a strategic pullback. President Zelensky says uh, that absolutely these Ukrainian forces are going to continue to try to defend that territory. But you can only imagine with the pressure that they're under that, you know, things are changing again, moment by moment. At the same time, I want to point out that it's not just uh, this front, the Donbass front, uh, where Ukrainian forces are facing uh, these tough battles. We're also seeing increased shelling in the southern front. Uh, The city of Mykolaiv in particular has been shelled heavily over recent days, according to Ukrainian officials. That could be an indication of potentially Russian forces trying to open up yet another front or push on yet another front. Uh, This is a war of attrition, Julia, with both sides losing resources, losing losing manpower, losing steel, uh, losing steam, rather. And it could drag out with civilians caught in the middle, of course, for much longer. Yeah, you make a great point. A war of attrition with consequences, not just in this region, of course, but beyond too. Sama, great to have you with us. Thank you. Sama Abdelaziz there. Food, speaking of that, has now become part of the Kremlin's arsenal of terror. Forceful words from EU Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen stressing the need to unblock Ukrainian ports and restore global grain exports. Food corridors at the core of discussions in Turkey, where the nation's foreign minister is meeting with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. Germana Karachi is in Ankara for us. Germana, I was just looking at the uh, press conference and some of the comments that were made there and the Russian foreign minister effectively saying, we're not to blame here and, and the ball is in Ukraine's court. So I think that perhaps answers the question before I ask it. But was any progress made in these talks? No real progress, uh, Julia. I mean, there was really no expectation of any sort of a 
final deal to come out of this, especially when you uh, consider that the Ukrainians were not part of these uh, talks today. The expectation was that this is really going to lay the groundwork for further negotiations, further talks to try and work to establish this ambitious plan of a sea corridor through uh, the Black Sea to resume exports of Ukrainian agricultural products and uh, grains. And what we've heard from the Turkish foreign minister is that they're hoping in the coming days to try and bring together the Ukrainians, the Russians, along with Turkey, uh, to look at a possible UN plan to try and create this grain corridor. Now, these talks Julia are expected to be very complicated, really technical. They're going to be looking at how they're going to uh, establish this sea corridor, what it's going to look like, who is going to be responsible uh, for the uh, naval escorts for these ships coming in and out, the naval inspections of these ships. But perhaps the biggest obstacle, and we heard that again uh, today come up in the press conference, is the issue of the mines in the Black Sea around the Ukrainian ports. As you mentioned there, the Russian foreign minister blaming uh, Ukraine for this, saying that once they remove these mines, that exports will resume. And of course, we know that not only Ukraine, but the United States, the uh, EU and others have blamed Russia for the blockade of Ukrainian uh, ports. So this is one issue they have to really uh, deal with. And another major issue to tackle, uh, Julia, is the uh, what the Ukrainians want. And they really want security guarantees, saying that, you know, their concern is that Russia would use this to try and attack their southern coast and their ports. Then also another issue, of course, is what the Russians want in return. And indications are they want some sort of sanctions relief, which, as you would expect, is going to be uh, highly unlikely, uh, considering that Western nations just uh, slap those sanctions on uh, Russia. So really not much progress made uh, today, but the Turkish foreign minister making clear that his country is going to continue working in this facilitator, mediator role to try um, and uh, combat what he described as a true global crisis right now. Yeah, I mean, the World Food Programme chief told us this was a declaration of war on food security, this ongoing blocking of the ports and, and the world, the international community needs to come together to address this. Um, yes, seems like little progress there. We can uh, hope. That's all we have at this moment. Germana, great to have you with us. Thank you from Ankara there. And the issue of global food supplies was part of my conversation with the Secretary General of the OECD. Hear about the challenges that lie ahead in around 20 minutes' time with that conversation. To Berlin now. One person has died. Several others were hurt after a car drove into a crowd in a busy shopping area. It happened near the site of the Christmas market terror attack six years ago. Fred Pleitgen joins us now. Fred, what more do we know about what happened here, who the individual was that was driving this, and perhaps if it was an accident or otherwise? Many questions. Yeah, a lot of questions, and, and whether or not it was an accident or something else is certainly something that the authorities say. They simply don't know at this point in time. They're still trying to discern that. However, they are saying more about the alleged driver of this vehicle. They say it's a 29-year-old uh, Armenian-German man who is actually a resident in Berlin. It was quite interesting because we saw uh, that car there that you see right there that then uh, in the end ran into a perfume store. Really, as you, as you put it correctly, very close to where that Christmas market attack happened uh, in 2016 and Christmas of that year. And you can tell that that car 
car has a Berlin registered license plate. And apparently the driver is someone who is resident in Berlin. But again, the authorities at this point in time uh, say they simply don't know what exactly was behind uh, what, what happened there, whether or not it was an accident or whether or not uh, there's some other sort of motivation behind it. But they do know that there was a lot of carnage, and that certainly is something uh, that uh, is extremely scary for folks there in Berlin. Um, that area, they say this accident happened or this, uh, this uh, incident happened at around 10.30 local time. And the shops there, um, this is one of the most uh, popular shopping districts in all of Berlin. The shops there opened around 10 a.m. So it would be shortly after shops opened. There would have been a lot of people out. We're coming right out of a longer weekend uh, in uh, Berlin with some public holidays that were going on. And apparently the car ran into a group of people, then actually... She went back onto the road, then went back on the sidewalk and ran into that perfume store uh, that we saw that we saw earlier. That video of that car uh, in there, and that's uh, you know, obviously where a lot of those people were, were were injured. Now the police came out just a couple of minutes ago. This is something that we have fresh for you, and apparently the amount of injured who have life-threatening injuries has now been raised to six from five. One person is dead, but again, right now the police are still trying to come to terms as to what exactly the motivation was. As you can see there on our video. A lot of authorities are on the scene, a lot of police, a lot of first responders. There was an emergency helicopter that was on the scene as well as the authorities right now siphoning through everything. But they do believe that they have the driver in custody. Um, earlier reports were that apparently he was apprehended actually by pedestrians who were standing by and then handed over to authorities. Julia. Yeah, and I know the authorities have, have requested passers-by, if they have video or further information to mm. get in touch too. So if anybody's watching and, and does, then they should do that. Fred, thank you for that update there. And we wish all those people well. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. And that says it all. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson greeted with both cheers and boos as he walked into Parliament earlier. It was the first time taking questions from lawmakers since surviving a confidence vote on Monday. And he defiantly vowed that no one will stop him from doing his job despite his opponent's intentions. In a long uh, political career so far, I have, of course, picked up, so, uh, barely begun, I have, of course, picked up political opponents all over the place. Yeah. And that is because, it's, it's, and that is because uh, this government has done some very big and very remarkable things, uh, which they did not necessarily approve of. U.S. senators say they're starting to narrow their differences on gun violence legislation. They're considering small changes to current laws, including strengthening school security and further funding mental health care. The White House says it is optimistic about the talks. It held a news conference on gun control with actor Matthew McConaughey, a native of a town that suffered a recent mass shooting. Can both sides rise above? Can both sides see beyond the political problem at hand and admit that we have a life preservation problem on our hands? And President Biden's heading west today to host leaders from across the Western Hemisphere at the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. The attention, though, now on a growing list of leaders who've chosen not to attend rather than those who weren't invited, as Caitlin Collins reports. A presidential summit off to a rocky start before it's even underway. The president is, um, is, is looking forward to leaving tomorrow uh, to head to the summit. 
President Biden set to host the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles and convene the leaders of North, Central and South America, but several have declined his invitation. There cannot be a Summit of the Americas if all the American continent countries do not participate. Mexican President André Manuel López Obrador says he's boycotting after his authoritarian counterparts in Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela weren't invited. I believe in the need to change the policy that has been in place for centuries. Exclusion, the desire to dominate. Now, the summit that's supposed to focus on tackling immigration and reestablishing U.S. leadership is becoming more about the guest list as the White House defends its invitations. While the interim government was uh, was not invited uh, to participate in the main summit, they are welcome to participate in all three stakeholder forums. White House aides also pressed to explain where Biden draws the line as he refuses to extend invitations to those dictators while also planning a trip to oil-rich Saudi Arabia, which he once vowed to make a pariah for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Does he still seek to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state? As president, he believes that if there is any um, any way to get uh, peace, he feels like he should take that, uh, he should take that direction. The president considers Saudi Arabia an important partner on a host of regional and global strategies. Democratic lawmakers arguing that Biden's hand was forced by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Saudis are the sole country that has a significant amount of quickly, readily deliverable oil and gas that can help address this. This is the sort of compromise that makes politics painful. In the end, when it comes to the Summit of the Americas, the White House says 23 heads of state will be attending, with several other nations sending deputies in their place. One leader that the president will be coming face-to-face with for the first time is the president of Brazil. They will be meeting during the summit while the president is in Los Angeles. Caitlin Collins, CNN, the White House. Okay, coming up on First Move, the Ukrainian war, China's COVID lockdowns, and rising pricing pressures, all weighing on the global economy, the head of the OECD gives his assessment next. Plus, I'm a consumer, get me out of here. The CEO of Hyatt discusses the recent travel explosion and what may still be holding us back next. Welcome back to First Move. A week of Wednesday on tap for U.S. stocks. So admittedly, anything's possible as Tuesday's late morning bounce proves we ended up higher, in fact, in yesterday's session. Europe, as you can see, turning lower too. Recession fears and the threat of stagflation, a.k.a. slowing growth and higher prices, continues to permeate both conversations and forecasts. The World Bank yesterday warning that some countries will have trouble avoiding recession. And the OECD out today with its warning about what's needed to offset the slowdown. The OECD Secretary General is on the show later today. So that conversation coming up. Meanwhile, concerns about the recession risk in the United States also heightened by the Atlanta Federal Reserve. Their latest snapshot shows the economy weakening even over just the past few weeks and is now growing by less than 1%. And of course, that follows a negative GDP read for the first quarter. 
contributing to that, of course, oil's relentless rise. And that's going to be a deciding recessionary factor. Goldman Sachs now warning that crude will average around $140 a barrel later this summer, some 14 percent higher than where it is now. They also say oil needs to rise to $160 a barrel before firms are incentivized to get out there and pump more and motorists are finally forced to drive less and it brings that supply-demand imbalance more into line. Oil currently higher by around 1% with both Brent and US crude now topping, as you can see there, $120 a barrel. It's an additional challenge for Ukraine, of course, with President Zelensky warning this winter will be the worst the country has faced in decades. He announced that the country will halt all coal and gas exports as it battles to shore up domestic supplies. President Zelensky met with the largest state-owned energy companies this week to discuss plans for what happens when the cold weather returns. And one of the companies that will be instrumental in that effort is DTEC, Ukraine's largest private energy firm. It provides 20% of Ukraine's electricity needs. It's also the country's biggest employer with more than 60,000 workers. And DTEC CEO Maxim Timchenko joins us now from Kyiv. Maxim, great to have you on the show. We appreciate your time. Just tell me how bad it might get this winter for Ukrainians. Do they have to expect power cuts, rationing as a matter of course? Good morning, Julia. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your interest in speaking with us. Uh, more than 100 days, Ukrainians fighting, fighting for Ukraine, fighting for democracy, for our freedom, and fighting for energy security of European countries. So we already demonstrated that in such a difficult situation, we maintain stability of our energy system, and also we connected to European energy system. Moreover, we we uh, offering export of electricity from Ukraine to support uh, our neighbors. Uh, so for the next winter season, it won't be easy, but uh, we demonstrated so high level of unity. Ukrainian people, Ukrainian business, uh, every, everybody involved in energy security of our country. So today, uh, our company is a major coal producer in the country, and we managed to produce as much coal as it was before, before the war. And the same, the same story with the gas production. Uh, so today we we had all these uh, all these uh, activities together with the state-owned companies, with our Ministry of Energy, and I'm sure that for the for the rest six to eight months we will do everything possible so that we avoid any blackouts in, in during winter season. I mean that's an incredible feat, given what the country's going through. Um, for consumers, at the same time, the president said, look, gas and electricity prices won't change. I know you as a company as well have been providing free electricity to critical infrastructure like law enforcement, uh, hospitals and military facilities. Um, how much of the energy that you're providing is actually being paid for? Can you afford this? We have quite difficult situation in the beginning of the war where when collection rate was about 30%. Today, today it's improving and we collect about 80-85% uh, for electricity and gas supply. Yes, it was decision taken at uh, corporate level that uh, until war is over, we provide electricity for free for some, for some consumers, as you just mentioned, and we will keep doing that. Uh, it's not easy, but I think this is our contribution to, to our victory and that we will, we will keep 
providing this electricity for free. But in general, as I said, situation is improving in terms of uh, payments. Then we uh, try to, to do everything possible to improve financial situation for the whole uh, sector. That's why export of electricity out of Ukraine to European countries is extremely important to support financial stability of, of our energy system. And basically, uh, as I already said, unity is the key for us to be strong. So we work uh, very closely with, with our government, with uh, our partners and our colleagues in the energy sector. And I feel quite confident. I want to talk to you about the future and, and the provision perhaps of electricity to, to other European nations, because that goes back to the financing and the future and rebuilding in Ukraine too. But just to your point about the coal production that you're managing to to create and, and what you're providing at this moment, just how much of, of your operations have been impaired over the past few months? And, and just talk to me about sort of repairing those and recovery and, and rebuilding. So I would use the word building new Ukraine rather than rebuilding. So and basically uh, this is what we discuss with our international partners right now. So our position is that Ukraine should play much more important role in energy security of European European countries. And today we have enormous opportunity to develop uh, renewable energy. Basically, our company, being the major coal producer, two years ago announced that by 2040 we will be climate neutral, and we already became the largest renewable producer in the country. And this is uh, this is a good example for other companies that we should go from from fossil fuel to, to renewable, and Ukraine can be uh, one of the major supplier of green energy to European countries. So we brought to the public initiative called 30 by 2030, meaning to have 30 gigawatt of renewable energy in Ukraine. Uh, most of this will be uh, supplied to our European uh, colleagues, as well as uh, producing green hydrogen for supply to, to European Union. So these initiatives we want to bring to, to general discussion, basically in the beginning of July, till the conference in Lugana uh, about recovery of Ukrainian economy, where all this will be discussed. But I'm very much confident that Ukraine will play the most, one of the most important roles in future energy security landscape of European Union, where I, I believe everybody learned a lot about Russian, Russian energy. It's, there's so much in that. There's there's the diversification away from Russian energy angle. There's the transition perhaps to, to cleaner energy. There's the ability for Ukraine one day perhaps to provide electricity and, and, and energy to other EU nations, as we've mentioned. You know, I've spoken to private investors who, who are looking at Ukraine and saying, one, that they want to help, but also that there's a business opportunity perhaps too, whether it's not rebuilding, building future energy. Uh, infrastructure, electricity grids, whatever it is. Would you welcome foreign competition support, but also competition to, to ensure that you have the most efficient infrastructure, energy infrastructure in the country in the future? Of course, when, when we talk about such numbers of 30 gigawatt, it means mm. uh, huge investments, up to 40 billion euros, not only in production capacities, in power generation, but also in the, in, in the grid, infrastructure, transporter capacities, battery storage. All this newest technology can be brought to Ukraine. And we 
basically building coalition of, of private business and, and uh, major companies in, in energy sector. And uh, with, this, with this discussion, we are looking for private capital uh, supported by uh, government institutions through, through political risk insurance. This is what basically we need. But there is very high level of interest from, from private businesses to, to invest and to build new Ukraine. Yes, much to deal with in the short term and the longer term. So um, we wish you well, you and your family. Thank you for your time and um, thank you for what you're doing for, um, for the people. Maxim Timchenko. Thank you, sir. The CEO of Ukrainian energy firm DTEC. We're back after this. Stay with us. Smiling faces there at the New York Stock Exchange. Welcome back to First Move. Markets are open on Wall Street this Wednesday, and we are seeing a bit of a pullback as expected. As you can see there, a quarter of a percent for the Dow after a come from behind rally Tuesday. Investors concerned, of course, amid new warnings on the health of the global economy. The latest cautious comments coming from the OECD today. More on that in just a moment. In the meantime, India's central bank today raising a key interest rate by half a percentage point as it battles the higher inflation, pressuring global consumers. Though a positive session more broadly across the Asia session, the Nikkei rallying 1% on news that the Japanese economy did not contract as much as first thought in the first quarter. The Hang Seng up more than 2%, beating down Chinese tech stocks, the big winners once again, on signs that China is easing its regulatory crackdown on those big tech names. Alibaba today soaring more than 10%. And a charged-up session for Chinese vehicle conglomerate BYD2 shares higher after a company executive said the firm will supply batteries to Tesla soon, saying, quote, we are now good friends with Elon Musk. BYD also has a friend in Warren Buffett who is a backer. Firms involved in anything electric, of course, receiving increased investor interest amid oil's relentless rise, which is helping fuel global inflation. And the world is paying the price for Russia's war in Ukraine. That's the message from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development as they sharply downgrade its global growth forecasts for the year. It now expects growth of just 3%, down from the 4.5% it made in its December forecast. The OECD's Secretary General, Matthias Cormann, says Russia's war will continue to push inflation higher and challenge global food supply. Listen in. Well, Russia's war of aggression is certainly imposing a very heavy price uh, on the global economy. I mean, earlier this year, uh, the economy uh, was uh, recovering. Earlier this year, uh, economic growth was returning uh, to normal. I mean, the recovery from COVID had been relatively strong and rapid. Yes, uh, it was uh, uneven, and there were also still some uh, downside risks remaining with the pandemic. But, uh, you know, the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine uh, is uh, causing a significant supply shock. It is having a significant negative effect on growth, and it is pushing up uh, inflation higher and for longer. On the forefront of the war in Ukraine, of course, beyond what Ukraine's suffering itself, those most leveraged to Russian oil. And we've seen astronomical price rises around the world, but you particularly pinpoint the challenges that, that Europe's facing too as they struggle to, to diversify away. You've even warned about possible energy shortages too. It's clearly a problem for Europe. How high is recession risk in your mind there? And the risk is that weakening growth in Europe obviously poses a huge problem for the rest of the world too. 
Well, well, we're not projecting a recession. We are projecting a significant uh, downward revision to growth, including uh, in uh, Europe. Uh, indeed, um, the uh, cost of the oil embargo um, at, on its own uh, comes, I mean, reduces uh, economic growth by about half a percent in 2023, uh, and indeed uh, pushes up inflation uh, by, you know, in itself. But that is assuming that there is no supply response from other. Uh, oil-producing countries. I mean, OPEC countries and others could uh, substitute uh, the supply of uh, Russian oil uh, if they so tr chose, and, and certainly, I mean, we, we would very much uh, urge them to do so. And there's no ballast. I think that's part of the challenge here, because you've got huge nations like China struggling with the zero-COVID policies and, and slowing growth there too. Talk to me about your forecast for, for China specifically in that region. Well, I mean, China's uh, zero COVID policies certainly have come at a cost and, and they've uh, increased the level of volatility and, and uh, led to a reduction in economic activity in China. And, and because uh, China is such an important part of global value chains, I mean, that has had flow-on uh, implications for the global uh, e economy. Um, I mean, what uh, we do hope is that with the emergence of a, an indigenous uh, uh, RNMA vaccine in China, that the level of vaccine coverage and treatment options, uh, you know, as a result of COVID will, will help to improve uh, the outlook there. And uh, that, of course, would be good for, for people in China, but it will also be good for the global economic outlook. I mean, the hope for the global economy, too, it seems when you're talking about slowing growth and the challenges in Europe, the slowing growth and COVID challenges in China, the, the hope is that the United States can remain relatively strong and provide some support. At the same time, you're also saying, look, central banks that have the capacity to respond, particularly when higher prices are caused by overbuoyant demand, and you pinpoint the United States, the central banks have to act. How worried are you that the United States struggles to find that balance? Well, in the United States, I mean, the Federal Reserve has been acting and, I mean, they've been making their intentions uh, very clear. There certainly was a need uh, to, uh, you know, obviously uh, increase uh, the official cash rate in order to deal with uh, the inflation challenge there. But of course, I mean, the inflation challenge is uh, now very much global. I mean, this time last year, the inflation story was different in different parts of the world. Uh, there were different drivers uh, of inf inflation in different uh, parts of the world. And But now with the uh, war uh, Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine, um, inflation is becoming more widespread and core inflation is now uh, increasing uh, everywhere and, and central bank, uh, central banks around the world uh, certainly will need to take the appropriate steps and, and indeed they are. When we're talking about energy prices in particular, I know one of the policy prescriptions that you've suggested is a windfall tax on some of the energy companies like the United Kingdom has done. I spoke to the head of the American Petroleum Institute, the oil and gas sector representative this week, and he said it's terrible economics, a terrible idea. It was tried in the United States in the 1970s and actually prices went up and, and consumers therefore paid the price. Production went down. What do you make of that response? Well, we're not suggesting or supporting uh, an ongoing sustained increases in uh, taxation, but there are clearly uh, temporary uh, windfall profits uh, as a result of what is happening 
uh, to um, you know energy prices in the context of specifically uh, that we're facing uh, right now. And, and there are windfall profits being made at the same time as at the uh, low income end, vulnerable households uh, are being particularly hard hit. And so uh, at a time when governments around the world uh, are dealing with severely constrained budgets as a result of uh, significant fiscal measures uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, there is a further need to provide fiscal support, well-targeted and temporary uh, fiscal support you know, to those uh, low-income households that are particularly hard hit by higher energy prices. And I would have thought that there is a capacity to uh, align uh, the um, temporary opportunity to increase uh, revenue with the uh, temporary uh, exposure to higher expenditures. And, and so, you know, given the um, constraints that governments around the world face in terms of their budgets and their balance sheets, and, and you know, I, I would have thought that that is something that governments quite appropriately uh, should consider. So the message to the governments is don't get bullied by the oil and gas sector and the messages to the big players in the oil and gas sector are don't be greedy. Well, assess the circumstance that we're facing. Mm. I mean, there are uh, windfall profits that are caused by temporary circumstance. Uh, there is a, a temporary challenge at the low-income uh, end that requires a fiscal response. Uh, there's a capacity to align the two. I would agree with you. The knock-on effects of this are vast, and it's not just about energy prices. It's also about food prices, which combined have the most dramatic effect on those least able to afford it and those that spend the greatest proportion of their their household income on on these items. What your report also shows is that export barriers, restrictions are rising. And we've seen in the past that these these things make it worse, far worse perhaps than it might have been. Well, this is a very important point. I mean, the first point that I would like to make here is that in 2021-22, so that is in the period from May last year to June this year, the level of wheat production globally has actually increased. So there's not actually any objective reason for prices to rise the way they have. But of course, there has been significant uh, changes in the composition of exports with some large export countries uh, like Ukraine, uh, you know, facing um, constraints in terms of their capacity to, to export. So there's a, there's a change in the composition of trade, but overall across the world, uh, production volumes of wheat are actually higher. So what we really need to ensure is that markets remain open uh, and that to the extent that there are supply barriers, logistical barriers, uh, we remove them. I mean, we need to ensure that products can get efficiently uh, to the place where, where they're required. Um, and, you know, when, when countries impose export restrictions, I mean, what that really does is, one, it reduces the incentive for their local farmers uh, mm. to produce more as they can't sell it at the best uh, possible price uh, into the global market. And, and that sort of further constrains global supply. But, but even more so, it makes the problem in the rest of the world uh, even worse because the supply pressure there becomes higher uh, and prices will increase by more. So um, export restrictions are the worst possible uh, response uh, to this uh, challenge. Countries around the world really need to stick together and work to keep uh, global markets open. Yeah, we, we have to avoid this, to your point. And we've done this in the past and, and we should know better, um, as hard as it is. The World Bank this week said as a result of what we're seeing, and it goes back to everything we've discussed, for many countries, recession will be hard to avoid. Would you agree with that statement? 
Well, we, we are not forecasting a recession uh, over the forecast period for 2022-23 uh, as our central scenario, but uh, we do readily concede that there are significant downside risks. And, um, you know, obviously the risks are very much tilted to the downside. But from wh where we sit now, we are uh, projecting global growth of 3% this year, which uh, is 1.5% less than what we predicted about uh, six months ago. And we're predicting global growth of 2.8% uh, next year. Uh, most countries around the world have just come out of four quarters of, uh, you know, strong growth all throughout, uh, you know, 20. Uh, 21. I mean, the recovery from COVID was stronger and faster than had been anticipated when the pandemic first hit. Um, and yes, uh, inflation is elevated uh, across uh, most parts of the world. Uh, but we do expect those inflationary uh, pressures to start easing uh, as uh, commodity and uh, you know supply uh, pressures ease and, and indeed as monetary policy measures start to take effect. Lighter tone there than the World Bank, I think, this week, which was interesting. There's more first move after the break. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move and get me out of here in a nice way. Travel demand is roaring back despite pricing pressures and growth concerns. Hyatt is seeing demand explode with, quote, very strong bookings through this summer. Revenue is currently up nearly 100 percent in the Caribbean and Latin America compared with 2019. But of course, there are challenges too. recent flight cancellations and delays are fueling some anxieties among travellers as well as those in the hotel industry. Let's get some perspective for the president and CEO of Hyatt Hotels, Mark Hoplomasian, joins us now. Mark, fantastic to have you on the show. Clearly, there's plenty of challenges. We've got some CEOs in the world talking about economic hurricanes. But what's clear, I think, from your numbers is that people just want to get back out there and travel and see people. There's no question that that's true. The, uh, the human urge to travel and to recon reconnect with loved ones or if you're in a business uh, to convene your colleagues to reconnect uh, in terms of their culture and the connectivity of of the human relationships that, that drive businesses um, across the board, that's exactly what's going on. Interesting you mentioned businesses there too, because it's not just about tourism. And I think we've all been focused on what kind of recovery we see in business travel. I read that you've got, we're around two thirds of a percent recovered based on, on 2019 levels for, for business travel. Can you give us some more perspective and how much more recovery, bearing in mind we can do a lot of these conversations digitally too, that you think we get? Right. So um, I'll give you some perspective on this. The First of all, you're right. Uh, leisure travel was the driver of the recovery, but business travel is now uh, clearly recovering. And we have two, we track two different types of business travel. One is meetings and uh, convenings. The other is individual business travel. Uh, the meetings business in the United States is more than 90, 90% recovered at this point relative to 2019 levels with very significant bookings uh, for this year and into next year. The individual business travel is about two thirds recovered. Um, and, but I would just uh, point out for a moment that the, the line between convenings and meetings and individual business travel is getting blurred. There are quite a few uh, C-suite executives with whom I speak that say, you know, I'm not doing the day trip between New York and San Francisco much, but as a team, we've done West Coast tours. We've done 
we've done a tour together in the South. We did an East Coast tour. So there's some use cases that are actually new. And the reason they're doing it is uh, that way is because um, they're able to really focus in given markets with given customers. So I think the the being able to track these two distinctly and comparing them to 2019 is going to be a little challenging, but that's about where the recoveries are in those two respective areas. Yeah, but you make a great point. The whole definition of what it looks like now is, has completely changed, and that's part of what we've seen through the last um, two years. How sustainable do you think all of this is? I mean, again, we keep talking about a cost of living crisis in parts of the world. We've got ongoing COVID and zero COVID policy challenges in China. Just can you characterize how likely it is that you can maintain the kind of strength and recovery that you're seeing and, and for how long? Uh, I do believe it's it's sustainable. Uh, for Hyatt, at least, we serve a high-end customer base. Mm. Uh, we don't participate in the mid-scale or, or economy segments of the of the industry. We're really in primarily in um, in select service, but also luxury, leisure, and lifestyle represent forty percent of our total portfolio around the globe. And um, that customer base has the means to continue to travel, and they will. There's uh, there's they've prioritized getting on the road and getting uh, back together with family and friends and taking a holiday for uh, their own well-being. There's a lot of self-care trips that are being planned. We have a brand behind uh, a well-being brand called Miraval, which is, if I look at their performance uh, year to date, it's, it's, um, it's enormous uh, level of demand because people really are seeking out a way to take care of themselves and to uh, reconnect with them with, with either a loved one or just be by themselves. So I, I see that sustaining. The second thing I would say is that the same urges that we see the pent up demand that has a human and emotional dimension in personal travel is true in business as well. There's tremendous level of fulfillment that people feel when they get back together. I'm, I'm here in New York City attending a large hospitality conference and there are over 1,500 in-person in attendees. And that and the, the sense of, uh, of regaining that sense of community has been really meaningful to a lot of people. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because even if you go back six months, I think a lot of people would have looked at that and said, oh, am I attending some kind of super spreader event? And the decision today yeah. is, look, just get me back with people and have the conversation. Um, I mentioned it in the introduction, this, I guess, underlying challenge that we've seen in many industries, but particularly in the travel industry, rehiring. It's creating challenges with certain flights, with perhaps time for check-in and some delays, even uh, cancellations beyond. Mark, how much of a challenge is this? Or is people, to our earlier point, just saying, look, I'll, I'll deal with it. Um, I just want to go on holiday or, or do the travel that I intend to do. Yeah, I would say um, there are some challenges. Uh, one challenge, if you're sitting in the United States and looking for inbound international travelers, which is a very valuable segment of travelers into our market, uh, we're down 50% from where we were before uh, COVID. And so that's a, that's a, a significant issue. And, and one of the reasons that's the case is because the testing requirements into the U.S. remain cumbersome and mm. uh and and difficult and there's it it, it introduces some stress uh, additional stress in in the um in the in the process of travel i would say that as to uh airlines it's true that there have been some disruptions in terms of service and and also cancellations that some of that has to do with uh personnel availability and some of it has to do with other uh fleet management issues but 
we've been fortunate, I think, and we last year we acquired a, a, a all-inclusive, luxury all-inclusive brand management business called the Apple Leisure Group. And we operate uh, 100 resorts, about 60% of them in the Americas and 40% Europe. But we also run a large tour operations business and deal with airlines. So we're intimately engaged with airlines about their planning. Um, and we've been able to actually work through with them uh, being able to have enough capacity into places like Cancun in Mexico or in Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic. So uh, it's it's been, uh, we've been able to actually have enough airlift for uh, people who are looking to get to the Mexico and the Caribbean for that. But you're right, that it, it remains an issue. And then in our business, uh, we continue to, to be um, working very hard over time to try to hire enough people. Uh, we're about, 10 or so percent below where we would like to be in terms of total staffing. So several several thousand open positions at the moment in the United States. But we've changed our processes. We made it faster and easier, reduced the friction. We've made more flexible schedules for our housekeepers and others uh, to try to uh, attract to make more it people. Easier. So, yes. It's an ongoing challenge. Mark, great to chat to you. Have to wrap us up there. Thank you. Great to um, have you Thanks on. We'll speak time. again soon. Thank you. The president Thanks. and CEO of Hyatt there. We're back after this. Welcome back. And a glimpse of what could be the future of drive-through fast food delivery from the sky. Taco Bell opened a first-of-its-kind concept restaurant called Taco Bell Defy in a suburb of Minneapolis. It has four lanes and the kitchen is on top of a two-story building. Each lane has a specific focus. One is for customers who use the Taco Bell app. Another one is for delivery drivers and the others are for traditional drive-up or drive-through orders. Once the order is assigned to the lane, we just verify the customer's name. We lift up the top of the lift, put the food in, push the two buttons, and it's on its way. Taco Bell says the design is a response to the way fast food orders have changed since the pandemic began. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.